there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about speech writing, specifically in the context of foreign policy, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest has spent over a decade working in the field of foreign policy, including serving as a speechwriter for former U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry, where he was the lead author of more than 300 of Secretary Kerry's speeches, traveling with the Secretary to more than 60 countries. But before I introduce you to Dr. Andrew Imbry, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's T4C's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays and gives you an exclusive look into the episodes and the professions we're going to be featuring that week. And it is super easy to do. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org. And the sign up box is right there on the homepage. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated beverage because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Dr. Andrew Imbry, a senior fellow at Georgetown University's Center for Security and Emerging Technology, also known as CSET. Andrew previously worked as a fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he was also a senior advisor to visiting distinguished statesman Secretary John F. Kerry. Prior to Carnegie, he served as a member of the policy planning staff at the U.S. State Department, where he was a speechwriter for Secretary Kerry. Before moving to the Department of State, Andrew served as a professional staff member on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And these days, Andrew teaches foreign policy speechwriting and rhetoric to graduate and undergraduate students at Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. His new book, which is due out in the summer of 2020, is entitled Power on the Precipice, The Six Choices America Faces in a Turbulent World. And it's a roadmap for bolstering American leadership in an era of turbulence abroad and deepening polarization here at home. Dr. Imbri, Andrew, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am absolutely caffeinated, ready to go. So happy to be here with you. Wonderful. So what is your favorite caffeinated beverage these days? I actually have a very special one. One of my very good friends has a coffee farm in Nicaragua. And Gold Mountain Coffee is his brand, and he is kind enough to share it with my wife and me. And so most days, that's what I'm drinking. It's a wonderful, wonderful coffee, sort of has a lot of flavor to it, a lot of richness. Oh, aren't you lucky? Very lucky. Awesome. And can, can our listeners get this Gold Mountain Coffee online? They can. I believe actually they should be able to find it. I can I can follow up with you so that your listeners can get the information. Absolutely. Well, we will make sure to at least include a link if we can to any information that may be out there. That would be great. So before we talk about what you did as a speechwriter, Andrew, I thought it would be nice for us to spend a couple of minutes getting at least a peek inside what you're doing now at Georgetown University's Center for Security and Emerging Technologies, 
which is a brand new center. It's known as CSET that was established in January of 2019. And it's focused on studying the security impacts of emerging technologies of artificial intelligence. And it's also supporting academic work in security and technology studies and delivering nonpartisan analysis to the policy community. You are a senior fellow there. Can you give us an example of the kind of national security matters that's intersecting with AI right now? Sure. Let me give let me give one that that hits close to home. So artificial intelligence really is this decades long search for, you know, how do we create intelligent machines, machines that can basically perform what are thought to be tasks ordinarily requiring human intelligence, planning, purpose of reasoning, perception. And so it's sort of a, it seems like a complicated abstract idea, but in many ways, AI is infused, you know, so many aspects of our life already. And so one of the challenges of the job that we have now is to think, all right, what are the, what are the core national security implications of this technology? How do we understand this from a data perspective? What can we measure and how can we inform the public debate so that we implement wise policies to promote innovation and also to promote the responsible safe and reliable use of this technology, which promises to to reshape a, a good deal about our economies, our politics, the way we use our, our military. And so as a senior fellow at CSED, part of my job is mentorship. It's probably the, the best part of my job, which is being there to support people at this new institution who are from all sorts of different backgrounds, but bring a tremendous amount of experience from from computer science to the law to sort of very technical issues like computer hardware. And so I'm there to support them, to connect them with policymakers, to work with them on research, Uh, and also to learn a lot from them about what they bring to the table. And then I do some of my own research. And one of the great things about CSET is that we have sort of these teams are really the unit of analysis there. And so when you have an idea and you want to go explore it because policymakers are really wrestling with it and you want to have a contribution, you build a team there. And one of the issues I've been looking at is how can America work with its allies and partners in AI to promote and ensure uh, democratic values? There's such a big debate now about how to forge a democratic way of AI. And so we've been looking at how alliances, which is really a comparative advantage for America, can be used to that end. And so I've really I've really worked a lot with the, with the team there uh, from all different perspectives about how to answer this question. And that's sort of a third piece of my, of my job and life there is outreach, is communication to policymakers in and out of government, but especially to the State Department, which is my sort of former institution. And right now, you know, AI is reshaping diplomacy, but diplomacy can also uh, shape the trajectory of AI. And so I'm, you know, reaching out to a lot of these unsung heroes in the department who are doing incredible work on this and also trying to connect people at my institution, CSET, with the State Department to help foster, you know, sort of new ideas and to help think through the, the technical implications of a lot of the policies being debated. Fantastic. Okay, let's rewind the clock by a few years to when you were still at the State Department. You were working as a speechwriter for then Secretary of State John Kerry, and you were, over the four years that you spent at State, the lead author of about 300 of Secretary Kerry's speeches. And I did the math, Andrew, and it amounts to roughly 75 speeches a year or six speeches a month. Does that sound right? 
That does sound about right. It's hard to count. And I think the the pay, it just gives you a sense of how much speaking our senior leaders in government have to do compared to, say, some of the early years in America, that just the sheer amount of information, that the number of audiences you have to speak to, the amount of words that you have to put out there is so vast that you need a full team of speechwriters all working furiously to try to keep up with it. And as I, you know, as I say that, I think the words are so important important in diplomacy that you really need somebody, you know, full time, just dedicated to, you know, however many speeches there are a week, uh, because you need that care and you need that sense of responsibility to do your job well. Yeah. So actually, that's more than one speech a week. You mentioned that you were part of a team. How many of you were there? It would vary. I think on average, we had about four or five of us. And it's you know, it's actually the best part of the job was working with with that team. We would, you know, have sessions in the morning where we'd brainstorm and divvy up the responsibilities for the week. And you really feel like you're in the trenches. And when you have people of good character who are your real friends and who are helping you brainstorm, it makes the job a lot more fun, which I think is such a critical part of finding the right spot. If you're, you know, for your listeners, when they're trying to look for the best job, uh, picking one that's fun, where you have good people with you is so important. I think that's a big lesson I drew from my search, which was I originally would focus on the what, not the who. I would focus on you know, what's my portfolio? What exactly am I going to be doing? And I've learned now that it's so important to have the right who, to have good people that you're working with who can sustain and support you and who can inspire you. Because sometimes, you know, it gets tough when you've when you've been writing dozens and dozens of speeches and you think you don't have any inspiration left in the tank. Your you know, your friends and colleagues help you find it. Oh my God, I can only imagine. So could you take us into a typical day, Andrew, or what was probably more like one atypical week after another? Because you spent an awful lot of time on the road with the secretary. What were your responsibilities and how did you spend your days? You know, I love that question because you're right. It, there isn't really a typical day for a speechwriter in government. I think part of it was that we had the very special opportunity to travel overseas and represent the country with the secretary. And when you do that, you're going to the airport sometimes at very early hours in the morning. And then you are basically working to have an, have your colleagues all the speeches that you need ready so that when the secretary is giving you know, 10, 20 speeches on the road, you have it organized and ready to go. You're often staying up till all hours of the night with very little food, trying to churn out one speech after another. And you're usually hopping between countries on a trip. You know, if you're gone for a week, you know, you're often part of it you know, a team that's basically trying to sustain high energy for at least 10 plus days. I think one trip we took, we were in four countries in one day. And so it was a remarkable experience, but one that I'm never going to forget. <laughs> I bet you won't. And I'm guessing you lost months of sleep. I probably lost some weight. I think that's something my my mom worried about, but I also really gained in sort of the experience and and the opportunity to see your words have an impact on the front lines of diplomacy on some of these really seminal moments. I mean, from everything from contested elections in Afghanistan in 2014 to the reopening of our embassy in Cuba. There's so many 
so many of these big moments and, you know, to have a small part in sort of shaping the the message and the story that's being told is, is really special. And it does help sustain you through those long nights and late hours. Although often when you're done with the trip, you sort of come back and either you want to just sleep or you want to eat as much as possible. But it's the best, you know, the best job, best experience I've ever had. Oh, my gosh. Could you share with us a moment, maybe a favorite moment that you have from a time that you had written a speech and then were in the audience getting to watch Secretary Kerry deliver it and then, of course, see the reaction of a crowd in another country listening to the secretary's words? I have two that really stand out for me. One is on the home front and one is overseas. So on the home front, Secretary Kerry was giving a speech about uh, U.S. policy on Afghanistan, and it was at a moment of transition in the country. And he described three big transitions, a political transition, a security transition, and an economic transition. And for each one, we found stories of remarkable women that he had met in Afghanistan and who were doing who were doing sort of the work of making the country, moving it forward. And we told the story of a woman who was a police officer risking her life every day, a woman who was a volunteering to monitor elections, a woman who had started her own trucking company. And even those stories alone were were incredibly inspiring. And what made it especially memorable for me was that there was a letter that a young girl had written Secretary Kerry, a young Afghan girl, and she expressed her belief in the possibilities of the country. And there was one line in her letter that really stood out, which is she basically said, I want to be one of them. And it was a powerful moment. And we worked it into the speech. And Secretary Kerry felt very strongly about this story that we were telling. And it was so special to watch. There were Afghan women leaders in the audience. There were U.S. policymakers, students in the audience at Georgetown University. And to see the kind of impact that that can have when you share stories like that. I know that still today, when people talk about that speech, they remember those stories and they remember the hope and aspirations of the young girl who would look up to Afghan women leaders like this and want to be one of them one day. I still remember that very clearly. And it was a touching moment. And the second speech that really stays with me was a speech that we were working on in advance of Secretary Kerry's trip to Havana, Cuba, to reopen the embassy there after decades of estrangement and isolation. And it was a it was a big moment. It was also controversial on, on many different aspects and on both sides. And there's a bureau at the State Department, the Western Hemisphere Bureau, that did incredible research finding some of the Marine guards who had been at the embassy when it shuttered its doors many decades ago. And they were still alive. They had incredible life stories. And we were able to integrate them into the speech. And then when we went to, to Cuba and I got off the secretary's plane to go to the site for the speech, I ended up in the staff van with the Marine guards who had been there many years ago. And they were now much older. They were with their families. And it was just so special for me to sit in the back of this staff van and just sort of be a fly on the wall and to hear them reminisce as they were seeing the country again after so many years and what it meant to them. And then to see the secretary deliver this speech so forcefully and then to see this sort of changing of the guard with the next Marine detachment raising the American flag 
was a memorable moment. And a lot has changed since then, but it's a testament to sort of the role that speeches can play in telling America's story to the world and also in sharing the stories of the world with Americans. Absolutely. Oh, my gosh. And talk about a wonderful coincidence that you got to be in the van with three of the people that you were going to be writing about. Little did they know that Secretary Kerry's speechwriter was in the back. I stayed quiet. I was just in the back listening and it was really a treat for me. It was just by coincidence that I ended up in this staff van and that, you know, just for your listeners wondering what it looks like when you get out of the plane, you know, you, you tend to, there's a long motorcade and you're all rushing to sort of jump in the right van where you're, you know, we usually have a sort of designated spot. And in this case, I think I was just jumping in an available van in the back. And when you're a speechwriter uh, on the road like this, you've got these giant printers that you bring with you because you've got to be printing things out on the run. You've got your laptop, you've got these speech drafts that are all kind of in your arms and you're kind of run and get there. And so, you know, I was just glad to make it in the staff van. And then as a reward, here's these incredible people that I've been uh, researching uh, and writing about. So it was really, it was fun. Great, great experience. Love it. So Andrew, what is your process for writing a speech? How do you like to begin and what are the various steps that you take to get to that final draft? I like to begin at the end. So like a good story, you have an idea about the values that you're trying to touch in the speech and you want to have a sense of the end because it helps you create that narrative arc to your story. And one of the wonderful things about speech writing as a philosophy of life is that often when you're writing a speech, you're engaging in some form of public persuasion, which means that you're at least some of the audience is not on board with you and you're trying to convince them that, you know, you have you have an idea that they should listen to. And it's amazing how powerful persuasion can be when you do a couple things. When you start with values and who you are and you can gain that trust, people then are primed to at least hear your arguments before you make them. I think there's a tendency sometimes to start right with the argument and to say, here are my facts, here's the argument, and this is why I'm right. But if you start from a place of humility, start from a place of here are the values that we share, I think it opens up the terrain for reason to do its work. And that's really important for persuasion. It's also stories are really powerful. And so when I'm working on a speech, I'm often thinking about, well, this is about people. So how can I how can I find the right story to connect this issue to the day to day life of real people? And that is actually something that I believe is essential, not just to speech writing, but to democracy, which is the idea that, and I forget who said this, but it's a, a powerful saying that has always stayed with me, which is that you can disagree with someone's opinion, but it's much harder to disagree with their experience. And when you share your experiences through a story or the stories of others, I think it creates a space for, for common dialogue. And so that's the second task. I really think about what stories I want to share. Uh, the other thing I think about is structure. And this is hard because it sometimes tends to be the last thing you think about, but it's really important because one sign of respect to somebody is that you've given thought to how you want to structure the speech and the argument. And usually speeches are most effective when you begin with those values, with a story, with something that grabs attention, and then you clearly define the problem or the issue at stake and why it should matter. And then you move to your solution. 
and then to a call to action that challenges the audience to do more, to do better. And if you miss any one of those pieces, you'll tend to feel something absent in the speech. If you're all problem and no solution, it can be kind of deflating. And if you're all solution and no problem, people just kind of feel like they're you know, well, what's the point? They don't get the stakes. And if you don't begin and end with something powerful, you lose attention. And so the structure really matters. I think the last thing I'll share with your listeners is it's really important to show and not tell. So when you want to convey a sentiment, an idea, when you want to urge people to do something, think about an example to illustrate your points as opposed to telling it. So to take my own advice, here's an example. You know, if you want to say that somebody is a champion of human rights, it's far more powerful to provide a story or an example of what that person did to defend human rights at a moment of real danger or risk to themselves. And then you can obviously provide that clincher and say that's what makes that's what makes her a champion of human rights rights. But you need that example to really grip people. In that vein, one last thing I'll say, which is really important, is simplicity. You know, my my favorite life philosopher is Mr. Rogers, and he, ha- he has a great line where he says, you know, deep and simple is far more essential than shallow and complex. And I think... I know I struggle with this, which is that when you lack experience or you feel like it's an issue you're not familiar with, you try to make up for that with big words and complicated syntax because you want people to know that you know what you're talking about. And the truth is just often much more simple. And that I've noticed this, the people who really are, who know a field or who've experienced something at their core don't speak in big words and complicated syntax. They speak very simply and from their heart and from their gut. And I think the challenge as a speechwriter is to ask yourself, you know, how do I, how do I break this down so that more people can understand it? So that the idea gets from my principles head into everybody else's in a way that sticks. And and that requires you to sort of unlearn some lessons that you sometimes learn in school and to really focus on the bare essentials. You know, what is the most important thing you want to say and how do you say it in a way that connects with as many people as possible? So those are some of the sort of top line ideas that I think about when I go through a speech. Wonderful. And I couldn't agree with you more, Andrew, about the importance of simplicity and just an example from my own life when I was covering American foreign policy as a journalist in the beginning, and I would say probably for far too many years, I ended up using a lot of the of the awkward diplo speak that was being presented from the podium and by the secretary of state and whether it was her spokesman or his spokesman. And it wasn't until I became more confident that I realized and probably also more experienced that my job was to translate those words and to put them into normal English. But it was my own inexperience and my own insecurity in the job that led me to lean on those big words and those complex thoughts that they put out there as a crutch. You know, that's, it's just, it's, it's so true. And I think it's, it's such a challenge, I think for everybody. I mean, I struggle with it still today and I'm always trying to ask myself, you know, how can I make it simpler? You know, what's interesting is that I think a lot of these terms of art and jargon, let's say for, for all sorts of different fields are there for a reason. You know, these, these terms do convey a lot in a very precise way. And it's sort of a common vocabulary for people in the, in that particular field to communicate with each other. But when you're like you were, you know, when you're a reporter, when you, when you communicate 
communicate with a broader audience. When you're a speechwriter, you're not just talking to a group of sort of in-house experts. You're talking with others who are intelligent, engaged citizens who want to be part of the debate, but who also you just need to sort of build a bridge of understanding. And the way to do that is to you know take a complicated idea and realize I can say so many big things with the smallest words. And whenever I think of the big moments in my life, you know, I'm always talking in simple language whenever it's really important to me. So if you really think your speech is important, then try to mimic that. And it's just a, it's a muscle everyone can exercise. And I'm a real believer that this is an opportunity for, for everybody to learn good communications habits and to speak simply. And what a joy it is if you can find those words that move someone or they at least reach, you know, reach an audience that you didn't expect. Amen. Well, it is one thing to write a speech that you plan to deliver yourself. Because we all know, or at least hopefully we've found our own voice. But you wrote speeches for Secretary of State John Kerry. And you began writing speeches for Secretary Kerry while he was still Senator Kerry, serving as chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. How did you go about capturing his voice, Andrew? And what advice would you have for aspiring speechwriters as to how they should go about finding that sweet spot? Let me start with a time that I think I failed because it really helps sort of clarify what I tried to do to do learn better and to try to you know improve myself, which was there was a speech that he uh, then Senator Kerry had to give to the Millennium Campus Network as sort of a, a nonprofit organization. A lot of students are part of it that promotes sort of global action on poverty and sustainable development. And this speech was going to be about poverty and foreign aid. And I, it was really my first big speech. To, I had a chance to sort of try to channel his voice. And I had watched a lot of videos of him speaking and I'd read a lot but mostly just read, you know, sort of the statements that he had put out. And I I took pen to paper and put this speech together. And I thought it was great. And it turned out that it was pretty much the opposite. It was filled full of all the things that we were just talking about that I shouldn't do. It was very complicated. There was a lot of jargon. I didn't have a really sound structure. I also didn't really capture his voice or his history. And it turned out that he he didn't fire me. He didn't, you know, he didn't get mad. He basically told me a little bit more about his life and how he came of age and where he really cut his teeth. And he thinks of himself in some ways as an activist in the best sense of the word, because he was there on the front lines after Vietnam, protesting a war gone wrong. And then he was on the front lines of, of Earth Day and the environmental activism. And he had seen kind of the power of activism firsthand. So that's what he wanted to convey to this, to this audience. And what it taught me was that I can't just focus on the words in a speech. I also have to sort of inhabit someone's mind, their thought process, the history that they were a part of. I had to go read about this time period, listen to the music, read about, you know, read the manifestos, read the pamphlets, watch videos of it, because really good speeches don't just capture somebody's tone and words. They they really capture the way they think and make an argument, the stories that are a part of their life. While I certainly didn't master this after we worked through this one speech, it's something that really guided me for the rest of my time as a speechwriter, which is don't 
just think about the words and the high flights of rhetoric, but think about the ideas behind them and how do you make, you know, a substantive argument and then give expression to those arguments. And that was that was really valuable for me to learn. And as I say, you know, over time, then you can kind of combine that with watching videos, with listening to them, really absorbing kind of the sound and the cadence of their voice. And one very special tip that I always used to implement was for aspiring speechwriters in your audience, try to bring your prepared drafts to events and watch the places where your boss departs from the language or tells a story or inserts a different kind of joke. And you can learn so much just by the rhythm of the way that they speak and the sound of their voice and where they're comfortable and where they aren't. Some of this is just learning by doing. And some of it is, you know, as I say, that careful thought process of how do I how do I capture this person's way of thinking and way of being and not just the words that are coming out of their mouth. You mentioned the word rhythm. Do you think there is a musicality to a good speech? Absolutely. You know, I think there's so many parallels actually between speech writing and, and music. For the musicians out there thinking about phrasing and you know, exposition, development, recapitulation, how you exercise your voice. So the the pitch of your voice, the the how loud you get, how soft you get. You know, one of the interesting things is communicators know that much of the message that you're conveying comes across in the tone and in your body language and not just in the words. And so sometimes when you write, you have to almost think of the words as sounds. It helps to read poetry when you're trying to write a speech. It helps you appreciate that these sounds can convey meaning. And you know, I'm someone who I've I've grown up and loved playing jazz piano. It's it's really a, f- a fun way to enter into speech writing because jazz involves both sort of, it's that syncopation idea, the idea that you can be part of a group and you can express your individuality. And I think that's something really fun in a speech, which is you're trying to, structure an argument, but you realize that the way people interpret that argument is not just rational, but also emotional. And and so you're looking for ways to sort of bend the rules of grammar and convey ideas in a vivid way. I had a mentor tell me that you want to think things, not words. And I always thought that was kind of a neat way of approaching it because you really want to create a picture in someone's mind. So one little trick is when you're writing a speech and you're trying to decide what's the right word, try to close your eyes and imagine what that word looks like. See if it conjures a picture in your mind. And if it doesn't, then try a different word because you really, that's your goal is you're trying to create something that's memorable and you're trying to convey the truth in a way that will stick with people. Great advice, Andrew. Before I pivot to your book, I want to ask you something that I'm guessing is on the minds of our young listeners, and that is, what was it like to work with Secretary John Kerry? What was he like as a as a boss, as somebody that you spent countless hours with? Is there anything that, that you could share a story or an example that you think would be kind of telling about him? Yeah, let me let me share because I think it's it's helpful. It's helped me think about the kind of bosses I can work for. I mean, he's been the most important mentor in my life. And one of the things I loved about working for him is he takes writing very seriously. 
And he is someone who launched himself with words way back in the in the debates around Vietnam. And he testified before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee about how you can ask a man to be the last man to die for a mistake. And in some ways that sort of catapulted him into the into the public debate about this. And I think he always appreciated the power of words, which then translated to a relationship in, as secretary and speechwriter where he knew that every speech mattered and he knew that this was an oppor- a message opportunity, an opportunity to persuade, an opportunity to share America's story. And so I would much prefer, I think there's lots of different kinds of people you can write for. And to write for someone who is going to press you and push you to really refine your speeches and tell those stories in the best way possible is a real gift. And I share this with people that, you know, even when we had two minute video statements, you could get a call from him and he'd want to go over part of it and he'd want to think about it and he'd work on it. And I, you know, sort of the respect he would give to the written word made me want to try even harder. One example of a way of thinking and how he approaches issues that I'd share is we worked on a commencement together for the UN International School, which is up in New York, and it brings together a wonderfully diverse set of students. And I was trying to find a theme that would speak to so many different countries and cultures and people. And it's hard because a speech about everything is a speech about nothing. So what, you know, what is that core message? And I was really struggling with it. And I remember him sharing with me the advice from his father, who was a diplomat and his father, Richard Carey, would talk about how the art of diplomacy is seeing an issue, not just through your country's eyes, which is critical, but also through the eyes of another country, even through the eyes of children in another country. And in his memoir, he writes a lot about how, you you know, whether, you know, it's in a war zone or in dealing with issues of development, he would often look to the next generation and wonder how they would see the American role or policy and what it would look like to them. Even in Vietnam, one of his earliest experiences, he talks about sort of wondering what what everything looked like through the eyes of, of people there. And it's a really important skill. And it's, I think, a, it, it's revealing of the way he thinks. He's not imprisoned by the past. He's informed by it. And he's informed by sort of thinking in this sort of deep empathy about the way people see issues. And to me, that's shaped the way I look at foreign policy and how the kind of speeches that I want to write. And, you know, you write because you're a representative of the American people and you're telling their story. But you are also a translator of stories between America and the world and the world in America. And that's a that's a lesson I learned from another great diplomat, Bill Burns, who was our deputy secretary of state. And he's been an ambassador and sort of one of the, the greatest diplomats of his generation and real sort of a mentor to me and to so many people. Those are the kinds of lessons and stories that you need to be a good writer. Wonderful. Well, you have not only written many, many, many speeches, but you have also written books. And your new book, Power on the Precipice, The Six Choices America Faces in a Turbulent World, is going to be released in the summer of 2020. As the title suggests, it's about the future of American power. Why did you want to write this book? And what lessons does it hold for policymakers today? I've been thinking about this book for a long time. In some ways, it's the product of my life because there was the, if you go back in the Cold War, we sort of had this big bipolar competition with the Soviet Union. And I think it was a it was a messier world sometimes than we give it credit for, but there was also a simplicity, kind of a set of rules, 
sometimes tacit, about the way diplomacy worked. And then after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was a moment when American power was perceived to be at its peak. Countries that were former rivals were either recovering or they were willing to cooperate. Ideology hadn't made its sort of prominent return. The world of globalization was sort of stitching things together. I think this is a sort of conventional wisdom and there were many cross currents, many contradictions in the system that we're wrestling with today. But it was sort of a period of American primacy. And then around 2007, 2008, with the financial crisis, with sort of an increasing bullishness and uh, on the part of Russia and China, and then, you know, of course, with the Arab revolutions, which showed us that what was stable is not as stable as we think, and that the demand for dignity really is unstoppable, and how important institutions are. All these things kind of swirled around and have produced an era without a name in some ways, a moment that is incredibly turbulent. And so I've been thinking about sort of these issues of America's place in the world from when I was a foreign service brat traveling the world with my dad and mom and brother to today. And I wanted to write a book about kind of what, what's the world we live in today? You know, what, what is that era without a name? How do we describe it? We're a country with so much potential, but we're also incredibly polarized. We're divided and distracted. And in some ways, the ground is shifting beneath our feet in the world. And I'm a believer that American leadership is really important. And I'm optimistic. I wrote this book out of a love for the, for the country and what it can be. And also mindful that a lot of the things that we face involve some very difficult choices, sacrifices, and it's going to require us to lead with a lot of foresight, but also still, despite all the turbulence, confidence in our purpose. So this is my attempt, sort of my small contribution of what are those big choices? And then I try to describe each choice through the eyes of a leader. And I'll tell the stories of different leaders, innovators, diplomats, negotiators, corruption activists, anti-corruption activists. And so I try to sort of convey what these issues look like through their eyes, how they've wrestled with it. And then I reach back into history and look for some lessons from other countries about how they've how they've tried to negotiate those trade-offs. And in some ways, I'm just trying to put into practice some of the lessons I learned from my time at the State Department and before about sort of what diplomacy means and how to tell those stories. Does the coronavirus, which hit after you finished your manuscript, change any of these lessons, Andrew? In some ways, tragically, I think it puts these lessons into sharper relief. We you know, are looking at some significant economic challenges. We, we've seen how important public administration, public servants are to the debate to try to deal with this crisis. We've seen how interdependent the world is, but also how fragile some of these supply chains are. So in some ways, it really just sort of crystallizes this very consequential moment that we're in. It, it changes the way that we think about security. In some ways, security isn't just about sort of these big, hard security geopolitical questions. It's also about uh, how to be prepared for pandemic disease, how to get ahead of the curve on climate change, and what are the kinds of investments that we need to make to be prepared? And how do we think about striking the right balance between sort of a purposive response where we are there for our people and extend a hand to the world, but yet we don't overreact. And we sort of try to confront this with competence, uh, with science and with international collaboration. And I try to probe those issues in the book. And I try to show what's possible when American leadership is at its best. And so ultimately, the, the book is a testament to that. And it's a testament to the, the leaders I interview who've tried to 
make some of these decisions the right way for so many years. Over your career, Andrew, you have covered a range of different issues from human rights and trafficking in persons to counterterrorism, South and Central Asia, and of course now artificial intelligence and emerging technology. How did your degree in the liberal arts prepare you for this professional journey? I'm a believer in and having a combination of generalists and specialists in the world, a whole host of different mental models for seeing problems. And my experience was as a liberal arts major, and I, I did this in a way, and one of my professors said this to me, which is it's sort of the experience I imagine someone might have of seeing the earth from the moon, sort of seeing this wholeness, this sense of integrity. And I think the liberal arts tradition is a real tradition that goes back beyond the enlightenment to ancient Greece. And my goal was to try to understand these different eras as they progressed through different media, through art, through philosophy, through religion, through literature and history. And what it did is it gave me a framework for wrestling with big ethical policy questions. And it also helped me, even though I was grounded in one tradition, which was a Western tradition, it helped me engage in dialogue with people from different traditions as well. Because it, you know, once you know your own tradition, you can sort of start to see the entry points, the commonalities with others, and also the differences. And you can respect the importance of pluralism in democratic societies. And so liberal arts really gave me a, a wide angle view on the world. And it helped prepare me for what I think is a job market that can be volatile and where you're going to have to adapt and change quite often. And I never expected that I'd be working on really, frankly, any of the issues that I ended up working on. I, I wanted to be a professor when I was in college. And it's been a real gift for me to be able to constantly return to these texts. And I give an example. I mean, artificial intelligence really requires all hands on deck. It requires people who are ethicists and historians and anthropologists, and it requires people with technical sophistication and computer scientists. It's actually fascinating to meet people who are computer programmers who are worried about values and how do you design systems from the very beginning that respect privacy, that want to learn about how humans behave and the kind of ethical values that they espouse. This really is a coming together, in a way, AI, of liberal arts traditions and technology. And some of the greatest innovators in our country, in America, are the ones that can kind of bring these perspectives together because they realize at the end of the day, it's less about the technology and more about us and the choices we make. And so it requires people to learn a little bit about human nature and to think about those questions. And so I think there's always going to be a place for, for generalists who can see problems from different perspectives and who appreciate the fundamental human values that are at the core of any social enterprise. And so I'm grateful for it today. It still enriches me. I still go back to the text that I read as, a, as an undergraduate. And I'm always wonderfully excited to hear when people are, are exploring it themselves. So you mentioned reading those texts in college. You went to Connecticut College where you majored in humanities and minored in government and Italian. Did you know what you were going to do with your degree when you graduated? You mentioned the idea that you might be a professor. Is that what you were thinking? I did. I, I really wanted to to teach. I think that really struck me as sort of a very meaningful contribution that I can make to society. You know, I remembered how how much it helped me when a teacher would take me seriously, make me feel valued, give me a sense of the possibilities, even about myself, even when I couldn't see them. And 
really conveyed not just a passion for the subject matter, but a connection between the subject matter and our day-to-day life. And I wanted to try to do that for other people. And so the the art of teaching for me was so appealing. And I felt that the humanities, in a way, you know, I was saying earlier, they, they do speak to current problems and they're very, it's a very marketable degree, but it's also a degree about sort of yourself shaping who you are in your character for life. And I couldn't imagine anything more fulfilling than trying to be part of that conversation for other people as they're going on their own journey. So I wanted to teach and I took a bit of a turn. I ended up at a job at NATO, which is the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. It's a military alliance that goes back to the Cold War, but has had this remarkable history of adaptation. And it kind of introduced me to the idea that, all right, I was a foreign service brat. I'm, I've always been between cultures. There's this phenomenon of a third culture kid, always sort of been in Europe, in the US. And I realized this was a time, it was around 2006 or seven, I'm trying to remember the exact date, where there was still a lot of transatlantic tensions around the Iraq war, and other issues. And I realized, you know, I could actually be part of that generation of people that's lived on both sides, that sees both sides and could help bridge the divide. And NATO was going through an exciting period of sort of thinking about what its global mission might look like. And so it was really a spark for me to get into foreign policy. And I found that my liberal arts background actually helped me make these shifts and adaptations in my career much more easily. I'm constantly having to learn new lessons, learn from others and change. But what's stayed the same and what's helped me is this abiding interest in human nature and ethics and in sort of big social problems and how societies can adapt. And I think that's been tremendously valuable for me over the years. Well, I think it's such a wonderful example, Andrew, of how we may think we're going to do X or Y. And in fact, even though you ended up not becoming a professor right out of school, you did eventually zag (laughs) to the point where you did become a professor and somebody who is a senior fellow working on the intersection between artificial intelligence and national security. And it also speaks to some wonderful advice that you gave in our Espresso Shots episode in which you said it is such a great thing to run towards those challenging jobs because that's where the richness is in life and that's how you grow. I have two final questions for you, Andrew. Could you share a time in your professional life when you struggled? Maybe you even failed at something, but most importantly, how you persevered and a lesson that you may have learned in the process. I can share a personal story because I remember this ties back to the NATO experience. My family was coming back to the U.S. from Brussels And this was my father's last post as a diplomat. And I was also coming back to the U.S. and was hoping that I'd have a job lined up. And I'd I'd worked hard to try to line up something. And I came back and it fell through. And sometimes this just happens and you get these setbacks. And I felt pretty disappointed because I was really hoping to come back to to a job and I couldn't find one. And I kept trying and I, and I couldn't find one. And this was at a time when I hadn't had too much 
much experience under my belt. And a lot of times I'd go and I'd interview at places and they'd look at me and my background and they'd just say, you know, you really, you know, you want to do say something in foreign policy or you want to work on development or you want to work on these security issues. But I just don't see much in your background that speaks to that. And I started questioning myself, you know, despite what I just shared with you, you and your listeners about the liberal arts, I started wondering whether I had really picked the right path or if I had been foolish and not specializing. And so this period of self-doubt, I think a lot of people go through it and it might seem minor to the casual eye, but for anyone who's gone through it, it can be pretty wrenching and I couldn't find anything. And in this whole process, I am very blessed to have a younger brother with whom I'm, I'm really close. He has autism. His name's Chris. And what I ended up doing is I ended up teaching him and we worked through some of his high school courses at the time. And it was it was the most rewarding thing that I've I've done on a personal level. And it also gave me tremendous insight into the beautiful mind that is my brother, someone who has struggled for for many years, but is the most courageous person I know. And I learned so much from him, learned about more about empathy about trying to see things from his perspective, how to anticipate what his needs might be, and to realize how how deep people's minds are. You know, it's really hard to fully know a person. And being like that with Chris and working through his studies and seeing how hard my mother and father would, would work to, to support him and to make sure that he got a good education so that he could realize his talents, that's probably you know been the most rewarding personal experience. And it, it meant that the job felt so much less important when I was doing this. And it really, it taught me a lot about Chris's ability to overcome adversity and his resilience. And I started to have sort of a values readjustment about my realization that you can be resilient and that's an essential quality for getting through the workplace and finding what you love. And it also taught me about teaching again. You know, I'd only admired teaching from afar when I was a student, but this was a chance to to help my brother learn and grow. And it just, it reinforced for me how much I enjoy empowering others and trying to be a teacher. And so through all this experience, it was it just taught me a lot about about resilience and about how you can't always anticipate the turns that your life is going to take, but that in many respects, they, they can turn for the better. And you just have to keep faith that it's going to work out and that the lessons you learn during that that period are really going to shape your life for the better. And that's that's what I want to leave with your listeners is just to embrace the uncertainty and the ambiguity sometimes and to realize that you've got a support system and to reach out and fortify that. What a powerful story, Andrew. Thank you so much for sharing that. I'm really I'm really happy to have the chance to to share it with your listeners because I you know, I remember vividly and I still do every time I think about a new job, what it what it means to go through that and sometimes how hard it can be. And it's so it's so fortunate if you can have a, of a support network there for you to help remind you of what really matters and to you know sustain you through times when you you're doubting yourself. I feel lucky that I've had that. And I hope your I hope your listeners have that, too. I know a question, Andrew. If you could go back to Connecticut College and do it all over again. But based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? I would, you know, it would be less a subject matter and more an experience that I missed, which I think is really important. And that's engaging with your local community. I went to school at Connecticut College, like you say, and we were near Mystic Seaport near New London. And I did a brief stint of of tutoring a, a young boy. And it was an incredible experience. And I wish I had taken the opportunity to 
be much more involved in that local community to help build relations between the college and the community, to see the kind of work that they were doing, to, to do even more to give back. I think so many remarkable things happen at the local level that seem absent at the national level when you look at our big problems. And they're all of sorts of, you know, Mr. Rogers speaks of the helpers. You know, there's all sorts of helpers at the local level. And I would have loved to have done more to be one of them when I was in college. And I think I would have learned a lot. I mean, I think beyond the classroom, it really is true that you learn from your experiences. And if I could go back, I would have wanted to volunteer or start something or be more involved in the schools, local schools there, or, you know, and helping with some of the problems in the in the city. And so going forward, that's something that I want to take to heart is you know, how can I be more involved? Because people exist in places, they, you know, are, are part of stories, they have narratives to their lives. And those narratives are rooted in, in their neighborhoods, in their cities, in their towns. And I don't have as much experience with that. And so I would really like to do more. And I, I you know, that's one of my, my goals for the future is to see what I can do to be more involved in my local community. Andrew's new book is entitled Power on the Precipice, The Six Choices America Faces in a Turbulent World. It's scheduled to be released in the summer of 2020. Andrew, the world is a better place because there are people like you in it. You have just really enriched not only my day, but my goodness, the work that I am doing here by giving me the opportunity to learn from you and to get to hear about your life experiences. Thank you so, so much for making Time for Coffee today with me and the Time for Coffee community. And I just wish you continued success in all that you do. Thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure to have this conversation with you. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7 no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.